On today's pod, we have Dr. Linda McCarthy. Linda is a maverick and one of my mentors here at Ryerson. She is one of the most direct people I know, and while the tough love is not always comfortable, she is driven to make a positive difference in her student's life. Her passion for teaching is equal to her passion for environmental freshwater research, which has always been an interest for her. And as she challenges paradigms with the same courage, persistence, and passion as she encourages in her students, she is continuing to make a difference here at Ryerson. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Linda McCarthy. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today we have a very special somebody, which I am sure you are all going to know. And if you don't know her, then you probably should. Dr. Linda McCarthy has joined us today. Linda, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much, Dr. Covisto. Oh, we don't have to use formalisms anymore. I'm going to call you <laughs> Linda for the rest of the day, and I hope you call me Brian. Uh, so, so Linda, what is your role at Ryerson? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, when I first started a few decades ago, it was actually a newly fledged university. And so I was brought in to actually assist in any way possible by bringing Ryerson into the sort of powerful place of learning it is today. And that is my continuing role. And as it was in the early days, it's still now. And that is, you know, bringing in the research grants to make sure that students are engaged in the studies that I'm involved in. But in the early days when I started, and it's still true today, uh, Ryerson is really involved with excellence in teaching. And uh, that's what I try to bring forward every single time. And also promoting students. And, and I, should have, I should have posed that question more clearly. You are a full professor, which means you are the highest ranked person that I have actually interviewed on the pod <laughs> up until this point. So it's good to have the wisdom of a full professor here. <laughs> and students won't know the difference between a full professor, an assistant professor, or an associate professor. But the assistant is when you first get started and then you get promoted to associate, and then finally the highest rank is full professor. So I just wanted to make that clear because we're not dealing with somebody just from anywhere. We're dealing with professor Linda. <laughs> and, and I'm not being cynical, by the way. My, my, my listeners will know that I'm not, but I just wanted to make that clear. So Linda, where's hometown for you? Where, where were you born? I was actually born in Maple, Ontario, which is where Candace Wonderland is right now. But I actually spent my early days in Burlington, Ontario, which is by Hamilton Harbor. Okay. And then, so where did you do your undergraduate schooling? So I actually went to Queen's University for my undergraduate schooling, which is kind of interesting because it's a very deeply traditional institution. Its lineage probably goes back as far as University of Toronto. And then I did my PhD at the University of Waterloo, and it is a very maverick university. It was a late bloomer, if you will, in academic institutions. It started in the late 1950s, but that incredible maverick spirit is still there today. So, you know, when you asked me about my role at Ryerson, it was so fun for me to bring both that deeply traditional academic spirit and then a deeply maverick one as well 
and I would definitely class you as a maverick. I, I love, I like that, that you use that word because I would completely agree. So when you were an undergrad, were you a good student? I was okay. I got through. That's, that's <laughs> not an answer. <laughs> and so you're saying it didn't matter to you. No, because it was, I, I wanted an undergrad degree and I wanted to go and be a Great Lakes researcher. So getting an undergraduate degree was really important. When I was at Queens, I was actually with a lot of students who were pre-med students. So their marks were so incredibly important, obviously, to get to med school. So acquiring knowledge was of great importance to me. But if we're talking straight marks, not so much. I wanted to get out and do research. And so people who know your research and, and that you're studying the environment, is that something you always want to do? What did you want to be when you were a kid? Well, in growing up in Burlington, Ontario, when we first moved there, a new institution called the Canada Centre for Inland Waters was just being built. And I had a, a maverick teacher, I mean, talking about maverick, female teacher who took all of us in grade four to this very new institution. It was actually just trailers, but it had all these scientists and engineers who are all working on Great Lakes problems. And so I actually have always wanted to be a Great Lakes researcher right from those oh, early days. That's really cool. And so I also would like to point out that Queens was so traditional that Elon Musk couldn't actually finish his, his degree there. And he, he never, he did start at, at Queens, a little known fact for our listeners who may or may not know that. We also have a, a, a little funny anecdote about other famous people like Chris Hatfield. <laughs> Chris Hadfield was in my high school, which by this time was in Milton, Ontario. And he was in grade 13 and he was in the Air Force Reserves and of course had very short hair and we all considered him very uncool. So when he tried to mingle with a few of us, I was in grade 11, we just asked him to stay away from us because he was so <laughs> uncool. Did, and he, so, did, he have a must, did he have a mustache then? Because the, the mustache. Even, <laughs> he even had a mustache. Well, when he became the captain of the International Space Station, I remember saying to my students, be careful who you think is a geek when you're younger. They will actually grow up to be something pretty amazing. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> I, love, I, I love that story. I love that story, how you equally dismissive of Chris Hatfield. And now everybody... He, just think how much it costs to have him come to give a talk now. It's just ridiculous. He's, he's doing so well. So let's, let's, okay. So you went to, you finished at Waterloo, did your PhD. It, what was the area that you studied your PhD? Great Lakes sediment contamination, actually in Hamilton Harbor. Okay. And so, oh, so you did a lot of on-site stuff. You weren't always yes. in, in Waterloo. And so what drew you to do like, I know you say you want to be a scientist. When did you make the transition that you were going to be an undergrad and continue for another X number of years into school beyond that? What was the thinking in, involved there? What was interesting is I finished my undergraduate degree. I then became a technician with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans at the Canada Center for Inland Waters. And I had some incredible scientific mentors who said, Linda, go back and get your PhD because that way then you can be principal investigator on various research projects. 
And so it was actually these mentors who really encouraged me to go back and get that higher degree to make sure that I could sit at the adult table and influence research going forward. Yeah, and I think it's really important that when people do reach out to you like that, you, maybe it's not a right fit for you, but you listen to what they have to say because they, you obviously respect them and, and the value that they offer you. And they, it goes a long way because we don't always know what the next steps up are for us, especially as, as young people. I totally agree. And, and if I can just say, it has always been about these kinds of mentors who have helped myself, but also others that I know go forward. I mean, teachers encouraged me when I was in grade school. They encouraged other students when they saw potential. And to make sure that we go back and thank those mentors has just actually been quite an important part of my more recent life, actually. And I, and I, and I think it's a great thing to do, too. I've got a couple emails, I think, mostly because of the situation right now where people are being a little bit more reflective. And it's, it's heartwarming to hear those kind of things, even though you're not expecting it because... I mean, at the end of the day, those same people that mentored you just were trying to help you, right? And so to hear that they had made a difference, it, it means a lot. So all the, all the listeners, remember to thank those people in your life who got you to where you are. What do you, let's talk about your research right now. So we have a pretty general audience in terms of the scientific community. Well, how would you describe what your research is now? It's really always been um, using a miner's canary to assess stress. So, of course, miners used to use canaries. They would bring living canaries down into a coal mine, for example, where there might be noxious gases that the miners didn't know to analyze for. But if this living organism died, the miners knew to get out of the mine, even if they didn't know what the noxious gas was. So... I've always taken aquatic organisms and said, are you hurting in a particular environment? One that might have organic contaminants in it, one that might have heavy metals such as mercury or lead. And what I've been able to develop over the years with many, many other people doing research with me is not just have these organisms died under stressful conditions, but have they shown behaviors that indicate stress? And so long before a contaminant is at a lethal load, we can actually see if a contaminant is stressful at sublethal loads just by looking at behavior, by looking at reproductive impairment. Yeah, so that's my research really in a nutshell. Perfect. And for our listeners, you will know that one of our new buildings on campus is the Center for Urban Innovation, CUI, and in CUI is the Ryerson Urban Water, which you were the leader that brought Ryerson Urban Water to Ryerson. One of the questions I always have, and it's more of a curiosity question because you were listening, organic contaminants and heavy metals. What about salt water? I keep on thinking of every time in the wintertime, how much salt we put on, and then maybe it's not, maybe it's insignificant in terms of the salinity of the Great Lakes, but being so close, to Toronto or, or being in Toronto and seeing the, the, what, what gets put on the roads and that must go into the, to the lakes. Do, do we see salt having a big effect on any of these aquatic organisms? We have, and for decades, we have been concerned about road salt runoff into freshwater streams and rivers that run alongside our road network. 
So there is absolutely no question road salt has been a particular bane in the Kitchener-Waterloo area and the Grand River watershed. Road salt runoff has been a problem, again, for decades. We've tried to come up with all kinds of different solutions than road salt. We've tried beet juice and all other kinds of de-icing mechanisms for the roads. So there's no question at all, road salt runoff has been a huge problem in the past and continues to be a problem going forward, yes. And it's so important that we have researchers studying these problems because to me, I mean, that's something Canadians always take for granted is their water and their water quality, but it's something that like everything these days, you learn not to take for granted anymore. Exactly. Sorry. What what do you like best about your job? I just get to do everything that I love. This is going to sound so cliche, but being a professor is just a dream job. I, I get to interact with incredible students who are curious about, you know, acquiring knowledge. I get to develop uh, new research results and conclusions. I love my job. Well, what do you like least about your job is the next question. You know, I've had to think about that a lot. And I can't tell you, Brian, again, cliche, I feel so privileged, really, to have this job. There's nothing I dislike about it. Not even those INC forms that you have to fill out? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do, you're exactly, I do have to tell you, when I see students who are struggling, that, that really tears at my stomach, I have to say. And so then, if a student is struggling, I really feel it's my fault. And so it actually energizes me to try to bring out that potential in the student. So struggling students absolutely occupy a huge amount of my time, but it's about how can I be better in their acquiring of knowledge. And I I just want to say something else because it sounds so cliche of me saying how much I love my job. I have so many friends who are in the other professions or in industry or manufacturing, and there is so much about their jobs that are so awful. And so I I can't even complain about any aspect of my job. I just have to say that. Yeah, and off air, you are you're such a, a champion for for students. And I know that when you see students suffer and, and sometimes there's no solution, we can't help them because it could be a socioeconomic, it could be a situational thing in life. And I, I know that that is a tough thing for you to watch because you literally can't help them. And I think we're, that's something we can talk about a little bit later on. That's a little bit deeper. And I, I certainly feel the same way because when you can't, you know, it's so great, but when you can't help somebody in this job, it's, it, you just wonder why, right? It's tough. And, and Brian, if I can just pop in, I have now known you for a long, long time. And I, I really appreciate how much you love the students. And that has been so inspiring to me. I, I just want to pop that out there. Well, that was the next question, actually, but I hope you have a better one. <laughs> what, what, the next question was, what inspires you the most? But I hope you have a better one than that. You can use that one if you must. Do you know, do you know what, and, and again, let me be incredibly cliche, but my colleagues who give their best to students 
really does inspire me. And just when I'm feeling a little bit grouchy about going to a lecture or whatever, I see people like you, Brian, and it just pushes me to just try harder. So I, I do have to say that. But I'm also going to just toss out here what else really inspires me are the students. And I'm talking about students who come in who are terrified or maybe not inspired to get down to the hard work, etc., and yet find it in themselves and in their professors to actually persist and, and work hard and become better. And that just <laughs> inspires me to keep going as well. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I, and for those students who have had Linda as a teacher, I'm sure you all know that she's very direct. She's also very direct with her peers. And if she doesn't like what her peers are doing in the classroom, she will let them know. So she is an advocate at both ends of the spectrum for students. Um, do you, what do you, um, what do you feel? And maybe you kind of just answer this question too. What do you, what do you believe are the most important? <laughs> What, are, what do you believe are the most important transferable skills that every student should have and why? Can I, can I just tell you that in 2020, for me, the most transferable skill for a student to have is a deep, deep curiosity of the world around them. I don't care what it is they're interested in, but a deep curiosity and, 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 and about knowledge and, and what came before. So standing on the shoulders of giants and then being really curious to know how to move knowledge forward to make a better society. And I'm not just talking about what students learn in the lecture hall. I'm talking about how to make society better going forwards. And so that deep curiosity is a transferable skill no matter where a student ends up. Um, and of course, it's called uh, research and analytical skills. But it comes down to a deep, caring curiosity. If I, if I could also, though, suggest some soft transferable skills for students, can I just say that those who have compassion or altruism or deep collaborative spirit, it is so seen in the people around them. And interestingly enough, you do not need to be born with empathy. You can actually learn it if you care enough. Bringing that soft skill forward, I think is so transferable to making society the better place that all people must want. Yep, and you alluded to one other one and you, 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 those are all great. And I, and I always, I never like that word soft skill. I'm only correcting you, Linda, because yes. mm -hmm. it, it, is, mm -hmm. it, is, it isn't soft, right? It takes, these things are equally important to all those other technical skills that we spend so much time on, right? And, and collab, being collaborative, being able to, to, to be empathetic and, and self-aware. And the one that I thought you were gonna say based on the previous statement was perseverance, because that's what you really like, those people who, who just person, who are gritty and just work really hard to get through whatever their various circumstances as well. So yeah, I definitely know that that's a big area of yours and passion of yours to make sure that students aren't just doing well in the classroom, but doing well outside the classroom too. Can I thank you for throwing that in? Because all over my pages are persistence and courage. And yeah. what is interesting for me with courage is that it's just knowing that there are tremendous problems out there to, to, to learning in a lecture hall or what have you and yet willing to persist forward 
to endure any harm to make sure that the outcome is positive. So absolutely persistence with courage, absolutely. And, and courage is a good one. It's often it's often forgotten, uh, but it's it's the it also gives you the power to 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 have an open mind because often a lot of people the maybe the, the most courageous thing you can do as a human is say I don't know or I need to change, right? And those kind of things are are powerful tools in in that transferable skill set. Oh my gosh, Brian, that is so fantastic! I don't know, and there's six other words that we don't say enough and I wish we would and that is I am sorry I have hurt you and so when we put them all together there is a humility and humbleness that opens up everyone around you to all going forward so yes thank you for that can I can I just say one more thing yeah Darwin of course said it's all about survival of the fittest and what he then ended up defining fittest as being those who could collaborate the most actually survived to pass their gene pool on. So collaboration is often seen as weakness in some areas. It is absolutely not. And I think that that could be a whole other side conversation about like <laughs> where where even science funding is and and how we sell our research, oversell our research just because we're trying to to chase research dollars or funding and and there's all sorts of levels to that that I don't want to go down because we're now switching to the rapid fire, which is the fun <laughs> stuff. This has all been good. I have, but I we, 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 we've been getting pretty heavy with our students, and, I, and, and I'm worried that I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll be more about an interview of me and less about you. Okay. <laughs> so rapid fire. Let's start with the first one here. What factoid do my colleagues know least about me? And of course, something that you're willing to share. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and it's only now and because it's you, Brian, that I'm willing to share this. I suffer from stage fright. And so before every single lecture, I have to be in my office by myself and going over and over my lectures and pulling in new information and trying to ascertain whether my lecture will be engaging and what will the students in the lecture hall take away from it. So stage fright. Wow. I, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's only me and you here, so nobody else will actually ever get to know that. <laughs> actually, just yesterday I was interviewing Beverly Buzon, and she was an actor for seven years before she came to Ryerson. And she still gets royalty checks, so you should connect with her because maybe she could give you some, some stage fright tips. <laughs> See, we're all learning from each other here. It's all... That is okay, great. so... The next, the next question is, what famous person, current or otherwise, would you like to go for dinner with and why? Okay, so uh, thank you for at least having told me that that would be a question because there are so, so many. And if I could just be a little pedantic, I'm going to throw out, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King and Eleanor Roosevelt and some of the others. But any students who have had me will say, no, she has to say Rachel Carson who of course wrote Silent Spring. So why would I like to go to dinner with her? Well, it's like the other mentors I'd like to talk to again, but I'll just limit it to her. 
she personified persistence and courage and deep compassion and deep curiosity. I mean, she went to Johns Hopkins University in the early 1930s. I mean, she was one of only, I think, two females at the time to go there. And she got her undergrad and master's in zoology. I mean, against tremendous odds and barriers. But she actually ended up suffering much greater barriers when she started to look at contaminant levels of DDT in the natural world and started writing about it. And the chemical industry was so vitriolic against her. I wanna sit down and just ask her how lonely it is when you forge forward against something that would have so much hostility against you. So yeah, Rachel Carson. Yeah, and get all those tips for how she persevered. Because that exactly. would be really because you would have everything would have been lost torn from you and then i mean it's it's the risk that everyone takes but that's where the courage really comes in and knowing that you're doing it for the right reasons exactly what what would you say what is your favorite food lobster Ooh, lobster (laughs) i I, I always find it so hard much work to 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 eat it so i'm usually like i'll just take some bread All right, what is your uh, favorite beverage? Well, of course, I'm going to say I love a glass of wine because I love the camaraderie that I always associate with a good glass of wine, a good meal, good friends in a very trusted and safe environment. But I'm also going to say I have started to love sparkling water. I don't even know what that's about, but there we go. I actually got the sparkling water bug because it stopped me from drinking so much wine. <laughs> so when I was when I was in Europe on my sabbatical, I actually fell in love with sparkling water. And we know it's not a thing we drink here, but in Europe, it's like everywhere. Yeah. What What is your favorite color? I'm going to. I don't know if this is sad or not, but I love light pink. Light pink. <laughs> Actually, most people say green or blue, so you're, you're allowed to have pink. What? Okay, so complete this sentence. If I was not a professor, I would like to be? So, thinking about this, a civil rights lawyer or an investigative journalist? Ooh, those are good jobs for you. I could see you doing both of them, especially the lawyer one. <laughs> And just fighting for the downtrodden. I just, it's somewhere deep within my childhood. So, yes. That's very cool. Something in the top 10 of your bucket list. And again, I'm going to be really boring for all the other people who put out fantastic things. But I wish to return to some Canadian places that I went to as a child. Nunavut, Northwest Territories. I spent a lot of time in Northern Ontario, Kapiskasing and Smooth Rock Falls. So one day I'd like to get back to all those places. That's really cool. In fact, I didn't have a bucket list until I asked this question a few weeks ago and started thinking about it. And one of the Nunavut and the Northwest Territories, because they're the two, I've been to the Yukon, but I haven't been to those two spots and I've not been to, weirdly enough, New Brunswick. So I'm, that's on my bucket list to see all of those Canadian <laughs> places. So maybe we can plan a trip together once we're not quarantined. All I right, would so love who's, that. 
Who is or was your favorite role model? I, I, d I have tons and tons and tons. Okay, so not your favorite. Pick one though. So we can... I, will, I will actually pick one and probably for the same reason that Rachel Carson fascinates me. And I'm sorry again if this is so cliche, but Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the reason, of course, because he's just such an incredible human being. But again, his persistence and courage and really importantly, his asking his adherents to go forward with nonviolence. And he always said, we can actually bring more people on board if we have nonviolent social policy. And I, I don't even know how he could find it in himself to, to go forward with that. But the marches then that he led were extraordinary in that peaceful, spiritual, compassionate way. And he was one of the best orders of all time in terms of how he could, with words, could motivate people to do great things. I have a dream, Brian, that one day my four children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the character of their heart. Yeah, this great stuff. Great stuff. Okay, so what is your, what in your life has been your greatest achievement so far? On paper, I would like to suggest the research that was developed at Ryerson under very non-sophisticated conditions. I came from the Canada Centre for Inland Waters that had every analytical piece of equipment you could imagine for Great Lakes research. And I was able to develop with huge amount of support from upper administration research going forward that could actually answer some of the research questions. And what was so neat is that so many funding agencies also thought that this little engine that could, this researcher at Ryerson, was worthy of being funded. So NSERC Discovery Grants and NSERC Strategic Grants and National Center of Excellence Grants. So, you know, on paper, those kinds of efforts would, you know, go down as achievements. And, and that's great. And it all led to me with several other people founding Ryerson Urban Water in 2011. But I'm going to have to say that at the end of the day, at my funeral, my family's going to say to the audience, my greatest achievements were the students who have come to tell me that I have inspired them, that they've seen in me persistence and courage, and that they wish to carry that forward. And so seriously, that is my greatest achievement if I've meant anything to students as far as helping them move forward. Awesome. What would you say is your greatest failure then? So my greatest failure, and I've actually thought about that a lot, I grew up with the story of Anna Green Gables. I mean, she saw good in everybody and she was weird and she had red hair, but she just grabbed the best in everyone and moved it forward. And I had tried to do that. And what I didn't realize was we were heading into an environment of emboldened ignorance and I didn't see it coming. I didn't see for the last decade a kind of mean-spirited 
again, emboldened ignorance in those who had influence, you know, in, in administration, in politics, or what have you. So my greatest failure was not having recognized that human nature could go south. And I, and I wish I had recognized that sooner. And so maybe you mean championing maybe the wrong people. Will, will you help get them to where they are? Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Yes, in some ways, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you didn't realize what where they were going. Okay, no, that's yeah. Good. And and that's and again, when I look at the political situation, not so much in Canada. Let me say, I've been actually inspired by Canada's response in the last several months. But when I've looked elsewhere, and I don't want to name any names, that kind of mean spiritedness has really been on the rise for over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you, you can't take fault for the global mean-spiritedness, but you're, <laughs> but, but, and I, and I didn't see it coming either, but you're right. This whole culture of, of, of attacking people and, and coming back to Martin Luther King, you know, where we were seeing good movement, we're now seeing yes. a, a, a decline in certain groups and, yes. and it's sad. It's sad. So I think we need to remind all these reminders that we've got to, we, courage isn't just something you can take your, take your foot off the pedal, right? It's something that you yes. must always forge ahead. You um, have to forge ahead, yeah. And, and if I can just say again, I mean, Martin Luther King had died when I was still a kid, assassinated, but I spent my early, like late teens, early 20s, listening to Bruce Springsteen. And he would just keep saying, nobody wins unless everybody wins. I mean, you've got to hold a hand out to your impoverished brother. Because if your impoverished brother doesn't win, you ain't winning either. And so I grew up with all of that. So yeah, mean-spirited and emboldened ignorance, that had no place in my early uh, grounding. And yeah. Yeah, I think it has been a surprising turn worldwide. What, uh, what are you most grateful for? Oh gosh, I'm <laughs> sorry again to sound cliche. Being Canadian, I am so happy to be Canadian. <laughs> Somebody else said that too, you know, that they were born, they were just born here, born to a good situation to, <laughs> without, without any real, like it was a, it was a lottery and they won the lottery. And I think it's, it is something to be grateful when you have no control of our situation yet. Yeah. Relatively across the world. I agree. And, and, and again, then with the gratitude, I feel then comes this incredible sense of responsibility to reach out, to make sure refugees and immigrants have a good start, or to teach students who might actually be returning to home countries so that they can help in the old countries, you know, move forward. So yeah, I, I'm glad to be grateful. And then a tremendous sense of having to pay it forward. Yep, yep, good stuff. What, uh, what concerns you the most? What keeps you up at night? Probably the mean-spirited, the increasing emboldened ignorance, and yeah, just how, how and within our own tiny little world, can we just make stuff better so that um, good spirit grows? Yeah, that, that's a curve we have to flatline to, right? And that's something we haven't seen just yet. What, what spot in the world, I guess you might have already answered this, what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? Well, so someplace well, you've I, been. Yeah, and you've just reminded me, actually, this, this is other Great Lakes Shores. 
And so one of the things I've said to my students every single year, and one day I'll make it happen, if I could bring all of them up to the shores of Lake Superior, it doesn't matter what time of year, and we just walk down to the shoreline and just breathe, that's where I'd like to travel back to. Yeah, the, and by the way, it will matter for the listeners because I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie and I know that in the wintertime, that eastern shore of Lake Superior is damn cold. So you probably <laughs> don't want to go there. But it is stunning. And people, I've taken international visitors there and to see what is essentially an ocean, like it's the biggest of the Great Lakes in the world and how, how like you can surf. On that on that coastline right because it is so rugged depending on what time of year it is it is stunning stunning i can't even imagine the early pioneers when they came across that shore and must have wondered why was it fresh water it must yeah. be a sea yeah and actually going south I, that's something having traveled across the country a couple of times i've often went around the south shore as well and it's completely different because it's all oh. sand on the south shore and all rock oh. and rugged cliffs it's just it's, <laughs> it's amazing it's amazing to see those differences what is your most productive time of the day it actually absolutely depends i'm so sorry i wish i could <laughs> say i was a morning person sometimes i am but often weirdly i get great writing done at midnight to two in the morning so and I've seen you late in your office trying to avoid rush hour. Um, <laughs> and so I know you can be productive at weird times. Uh, probably your least productive time of the day is during the commute. So what is your, what is your favorite hobby? Again, I'm so sorry to sound so cliche. I, if I have free time, I actually go visit the elderly and I'm part of a conservation group. Sorry about that cliche. No, that's fine. You, you love what you do. You gotta, you gotta, you're consistent. That's good. It makes for an interesting interview. <laughs> okay, so what, uh, what piece of advice would you give your second year self? Okay, so this one is really, really interesting. I've spent the last couple of years listening to Dr. John Mighton. I don't know if, if you know who he is. He teaches jump, jump math. Okay. And he says that every student can learn to love math. And when you're really confident in math, you are confident in everything. And if you're not confident in math, you feel really uncomfortable all through any academic endeavor. So my second year self, I would say, find some great mentors who will make you love math, make others around you love math. And that kind of love and confidence will stay with you forever. Huh. That's a really good tip that I was not expecting from anyone. So that's good. Uh, and I think that's an interesting point about math. I heard of people say that if you were confident in public speaking, then you would be a confident person always. And I thought that was interesting, but it's kind of like a chicken or an egg turtle problem because if you're, I guess, no matter what your insecurity is, if you tackle it head on, you're going to, you're going to build the confidence, right? Exactly. And I find one of the biggest dislikes of any student I know is math. And one of the areas that a lot of students don't go into, such as engineering, they'll go, well, I'm not good in math. And again, it was connecting with John Mighton, who said, no, 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 everyone can love math. You just have to be taught and be confident over it. So yeah, that's what I tell my second year self. And it's not because I did badly in math in my undergrad, but what I did was I memorized enough to get the marks on exams. That's just sad. 
Yeah, it's not the right reason to be in that no. environment. No. All right, so now we go to our ask and answer section, which is where somebody else from a previous interview poses a question that I pose to various groups to get their opinion. And this is a pretty tough question, but it's, it also could have a short answer. How do you deal with fear? Maybe what are the stages you go through? Wow. My first inclination is to bury my head in the sand and hope that whatever's scaring me will go away. And I've now realized all that is, is it sets off what's going to still be there. So I have to actually start to articulate. When you say to me, I'm very frank with my students, but also my colleagues, a lot of that is because I'm trying to deal with fear. And if I can articulate it, and if I can have someone else say back to me, yes, I actually understand, then the fear can start to dissipate. So, so you address it. So once you, once you, put your, once you come out of the, the head in the sand, your first inclination is <laughs> to weather that storm and hope it goes away, then you'll say, no, I need to articulate it, verbalize it, make it real, maybe provide some perspective yes. by listening to what the people have to say. And, yes. then, and then what happens? And then what all, almost always happens when you expose fears to sunlight, they start to dissipate. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a diagnosis of cancer or what have you, but you can move forward then with solutions. And when you've articulated your fear to someone else and you've opened yourself up, you'll often find that they come on that journey with you. And a journey of fear shared is a journey, it's fear halved. And so yeah. it takes a lot though to do that. Ah, perfect, awesome. Okay, so we're in a really big time right now because we're coping with COVID. What would you say has been your biggest challenge in this quarantine or situation so far in your own life? I have to say remote connections. I, I really have found it so difficult to be on Zoom meetings, to be lecturing to students, to be with colleagues. Brian, I'm even going to say even this situation with you right now, I would much rather be with you physically face-to-face -face talking. We, so, would, yeah. we, would be, we would be drinking that glass of wine and we would probably we, get off topic really fast. <laughs> and, then, and then we would try to save the world. And, yeah, and then, and, and then we and would, it, it would still keep recording and we would have already left. <laughs> Exactly. That would have been a great, great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, are, what have been some of your strategies for coping? Oh, first of all, how would you identify, introvert or extrovert? How would I identify myself? Yeah. I'm actually an introvert. Okay, so it, it, this is not a bad situation for being an introvert in terms of being quarantined. But um, how, uh, yeah, exactly. So, so from that point of view, I don't need a lot of people around me day to day, but in getting my job done, my profession, lecturing research, that's when I actually need to see someone one-on-one -on -one personally to move ideas forward. And you're, you're, it's good. It's a bit of an older habit that, that I would caution people younger starting their career about. You are somebody who will touch people on the shoulder, give them a hug. You are a very physical person. And so that must be one of the hardest challenges is that you can't like physically touch somebody while you're, or interact with them in the same sort of way as you normally would. Well, and interestingly enough, trying to develop strategies to cope, I will go to, you know, family members' houses and 
all be on the street talking to them and you're absolutely correct brian that need to actually physically go up and just hug them is so powerful within me and the only thing that stops me doing it is fear of giving them anything and so but yeah very very tough yeah i imagine that would be crippling in a lot of ways and i like it's obvious why this spread through italy so much just because that culture is all about touching and hugging and really close interactions and so you're, you for somebody who's not italian you do come across as being somebody who who did grow up in that environment is, is that fair to say or how where did you interestingly enough i grew up in a very british household where my mother was very very refined and restrained physically and so the role model teachers i had were actually very very warm and so i loved that warmth just a just a bit of touching on the arm or whatever. And all those teachers would tell me is that everything was going to be okay with that yeah. hug, with that little touch. So that's actually where that comes from. And, yeah, and sorry, ju sorry, just going back to Quebec, having more problems with COVID, the times I've been to Montreal, that wonderful warmth of the people in Montreal, that hugging, which is very hostile to my Anglo upbringing. I just loved that, but I also understand how the virus spread more quickly in Quebec. Yeah, no, it's definitely, when I think of those interactions, I could think that being very handcuffing for you yes. and, and those, those people as well. What has been your uh, silver lining in this uh, pandemic? Well, there have not been a lot simply because so many of my friends have lost their jobs and wow. I am in incredibly worried about them going forward. And my dad is 92 years old, so there is quite a crippling fear of losing him to the virus. But I have to tell you, I have a daughter, she just finished first year university, and I love having her home. So I'm just popping that out there to any students who are listening. Your parents might and family might actually love having you at home, no matter how much you might not want to be at home. <laughs> and I think, and I think I've heard from a lot of students say something very similar that while the adjustment was hard at first, they're really getting to know their family in a way as an adult, because normally they don't get to be adults in their family. But in this situation, uh, it, as they mature and they've had these experiences, it's, a, it's like a new look, a new interaction. So I could see that being quite uh, encouraging and a, and a fantastic silver line. Absolutely. Linda, we could do this forever. And... and <laughs> If, if we actually were drinking wine, I have a new rule that I can drink before some, then we would probably be doing it forever. But in the interest of time, I just wanted to thank you for this very candid and, well, I was expecting no less, and guess our listeners weren't either, this interview and this sketch. And, and I realized how much I miss talking to my colleagues. And luckily, I, this little process is helping doing the podcast is getting me through that. But it was just another reminder of how much you can learn talking to people and interacting with them and sharing your story so thank you and and brian you have actually just made my entire month again as you say and i just want to reiterate i i now have just felt i've just had a glass of wine with you in my office we've discussed how to make the world a better place we've discussed how to bring students forward and develop their strengths and you've just again you've made my day my month and thank you so much for doing this this is Amazing. It was absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> Linda, enjoy the rest of your day and we will talk to you soon. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye, Brian. <laughs>